This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries. Eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly and their dog Ninja. Guys, welcome to episode eight of the midweek episodes. Um, that's number eight. Ain't it great? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Just trying to rhyme a little bit. Anyways, <laughs> so we got a good show tonight. We have part two. This was a year and a half in the making. Mm-hmm. Of Keith Linder talking about the Bothell Hill House, his new book, Attachments. And um, Keith is always a great interview. He was awesome last time. It's the only show we've done. We kind of did Chad Lindbergh, but that's because we didn't have a choice because they, he had a, a show coming out. Uh-huh. And we had to put his out before the weekend. Oh, yeah, but I remember. That's the only reason we did it. But Keith's is the only show that we've done where we did a standalone bonus episode. Mm-hmm. Strictly for him. I know it's great. And this one, like I said, his uh, this one's absolutely fascinating. I listened to this one, so I think you guys are going to big kick out of that. Leslie Fear will be back on. She's going to talk to us about the bubonic plague. Bubonic. That's nope. a funny word, isn't it? Though <laughs> not if you got it. Well, yeah, that's true. That's a very true story. So Leslie, last week she joined us, and you know we did a little like. Last Supper. Yeah, well, not Last Supper. Jesus was not involved in this. It was <laughs> It was Last Supper for a bunch of them. Yeah. But, yeah, it was actually people on death row with their yeah. last meals and stuff like that. Were, and that was just kind of a fun, get acquainted mm-hmm. type thing. Most of what she's going to be doing, you're going to get right into. Because, like, we're getting ready to do this one tonight's on the bubonic plague. We're going to do the Mongolian death worm. And then we've got one where she talks about medieval torture devices. Man, if that don't sound like a fun time, I don't know what does. <laughs> we could stick that worm in the horrific death trap thingies and cut him in half like three or four different times. That's true. They could do that. Yeah. But it's only like three feet long, so I don't know that it would. Oh, it's only... Th- well, that's that's kind of big. For yeah, a worm, not ain't for, it? Not for the, like the rack and stuff like that. They're oh. made for like people over five foot. Oh, that's very true. Worm could probably get out of that. I'm just he, guessing. He could wiggle out of it, probably. Okay, so the story we're going to do tonight... He could worm his way out. This is... <laughs> I heard you. I just tried to ignore oh. it. <laughs> this story is going to be another one of those... We're not going to get into a lot of details, but it's disturbing. Hmm. So, just giving you the heads up. I just ate. That's okay. I'm going to barf. Now, this story takes place in September of 1972. It's in Springfield, New Jersey. Little small town, not a whole lot goes on, little sleepy town, so to speak. Except about a year before this, just a hair under a year in this little sleepy town, a gentleman by the name of John List killed his wife, his mom, and his three kids. Completely out of character for this little Mm -hmm. area. Rude. You probably are unfamiliar with John List, but a lot of the big true crime fans know exactly who he is. Yeah, I don't know who he is. He's not a very nice person, I can tell you that. No, no, he's not. 
And, you know, he hit the bodies when List actually killed his, you know, family. He hit the bodies so well that nobody even found the bodies for like a month. Well, they didn't smell them? Yeah. Eventually, mm-hmm. he changed his ID. He moved uh, to a different state. He got remarried. He was caught 17 years later in, in Virginia, and that's when only when uh, America's Most Wanted had the, the episode on where they were talking about him. Oh, my him. gosh, 17 years. Yeah, and somebody found him, and then they snagged him. And when they talked to him about it, he primarily gave the reason. Like I said, we're just glossing over this because this isn't our story. Right. But his primary reasons was, A, financial reasons, and B— Get a job. <laughs> his family really, according to him— was kind of going um, straying from their religious beliefs. So he felt like he was saving their souls by killing them so they would go to heaven now. Is he stupid? Yes, he was. Does he not know that's not what religious is about? (laughs) He kind of went the opposite way. I can see that. So like I said, though, our story is going to take place about a year later after this catastrophe. But the reason we're, we're mentioning that is because in this little town where that horrible you know tragedy happens now you got something else a year later when this is something that rarely even happens in this area so Jeanette De Palma left her home uh, heading for the train station to visit a friend in September of 1972 unfortunately she never made it her parents got concerned when she not only did she not show up at the friend's house but she didn't show up at her own house later that night Mm -hmm. so they didn't know what else to do they called the police police made all the you know, they, they kind of treated it like a missing person, but they didn't put a lot of effort into it. I mean, they were, I guess, like she just ran away or mm, she'll be back right. or no big deal. Six weeks later, still no sign of her body until this gentleman is out with his dog. They're walking a dog in the woods and the dog's playing and the dog runs off and the dog runs up to him and he's got something in his mouth. Oh, Jesus, Pete. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It was a badly decomposed human arm. Oh. So police were obviously called in, and they started searching the entire area. And it was said, now, I say this, this isn't in the actual police reports, but several people who were there said that there were carvings in trees that looked like arrows pointing towards the body. But that's not in the official police report, and there could be reason for that. A little bit later as we get into this. So eventually the police did find Jeanette De Palma's body. It was in a section that locals call the devil's teeth. Mm. They didn't really know if that was the real name or not, but they were able to prove it through dental records. Whatever, you're done. Anyways. So there were some discrepancies as far as what was found at the the crime Mm -hmm. crime scene as far as... Mm -hmm. Uh, what was around her body, what wasn't. But there's, like I said, once again, you'll hear later while some of this discrepancies may have happened. What we do know, there were some occult objects that were found near and around her body. For example, there were some logs that were arranged around her body to be in the shape of a casket. So she wasn't in a casket, but they had, you know, taken the logs and just kind of laid them around in the shape of a casket. There was also some homemade crosses, much like the Blair Witch Project type Mm -hmm. crosses, kind Mm of uh, strung together up there. And then there were also dead animals hanging from the trees around the situation. Oh, my gosh. Wow. 
So there was no exact cause of death, according to the coroner's office, but he said that it was probably strangulation. There was no stab wounds, no blunt force trauma, no drugs, no alcohol. They did find high levels of lead in her system, which really made no sense whatsoever. And to be honest with you, I didn't find anything that told me, and I didn't look extensively in this because I knew it was a shorter story that we were doing tonight, but I didn't see anything in the research that I did that ever determined why there was lead in her body. Yeah, but can't you get that from paint and all that stuff in the house? And Yeah, but you wouldn't have high levels. Oh, you said you high would, levels. Yeah. Then a tip came in. It was about this homeless guy that his name was Red, and he apparently had a campsite that was right there somewhere in the area. So it made sense that he would be a logical suspect. So, yeah. They had no evidence, and eventually they pretty much had to clear him even as a suspect. So what, I mean, did they question him? Yeah, they, they arrested him. Oh, okay. And questioned him, and they didn't have anything, so they had to let him go. So the local paper comes out about two weeks after Red was cleared, and they said that witchcraft was involved in the murder. There was a Native American reservation right there uh, close by, the Watchon Reservation. And apparently there was rumors of Satanists and uh, a coven of witches that all lived on the reservation. Oh, how that's scary. Nothing really ever came of the case, so it became a cold case until the early 2000s. And that's when uh, we're in New Jersey. Now, we're in New Jersey. We get a lot of stories from. We've used in a lot of our research. It's an awesome uh, magazine for this kind of stuff. But they did a probe about it back in the early 2000s to find out what was going on. After they ran an article about it, people started sending them letters with tips and information. And one even mentioned that the police had lost most, if not all, of the important files in this case. You're kidding. But the police say that it was because of the flood that happened in 1999 after Hurricane Floyd. But some people think that there was a cover-up involved, which is why there's all these discrepancies yeah. back on. Because there's no was, way you could prove yeah, that. What was in the police report, what wasn't in the police report. So it goes back and forth. There even got to the point there was so much stuff that came to uh, Weird New Jersey that they did a book that was uh, it was compiled of all these letters and stuff like this called uh, Death or the De- on the Devil's Teeth. Mm. So they had enough information come in to write a whole book on all this information. So the book talks about a cover-up. It talks about um, some other suspects, and it also talks about maybe some um, other possible... Uh, reasons mm-hmm. for the for the murder but so nothing's resolved after as of all this right time. now it's still a cold case oh that's so sad for and the that family was in, what 1972 did i say oh my gosh so. i mean i wonder if, i mean like if the parents it just gets to a point i can't imagine it would just gets to a point where you just give up and just accept it and accept the fact that nobody's ever going to find anything I mean, I it's know. been it, so be many tough. years now. It'd be tough being in that situation, mm-hmm. but you gotta you gotta know at some point if it's been forty years. Yeah, that they, you know, if they hadn't got an answer yet, they're not gonna get an answer. Mm-hmm. And it's different with a murder, obviously, like this than it would be like if the child child was just missing. Yes, because I think there's always that little glimmer of hope, hope. when they're uh, missing. That's very true. That's true. Um, wow, that's a sad story. Anyway, so that's the story of Jeanette De Palma. Mm. Bless her heart. Yeah, and she was only 16. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. No, she was only 16. You didn't. She was 16 years old. Aw. 
I hate people. <laughs> That's, all. That's right. I said it. All right. Well, let's transition into something more pleasant, the bubonic plague. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Leslie with the fear of the week. Listening to the fear of the week. With author Leslie Fear. Hey guys, I'm lucky again this week to be joined by author Leslie Fear. You can pick up all of her books on Amazon. And Leslie, you're doing the fear of the week. You have a very interesting topic that uh, we definitely really have not covered on this show, which is, this is going to be a prime example of what these type of little episodes are going to be. We had some fun last week with the uh, uh, death row, last meals mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but this is going to, we, we had to ease people into it. So this right here is going to be more uh, along what you're going to be getting. Tell us what you got on tap for us tonight. Well, tonight I've got... The Black Death, or what a lot of people call the bubonic plague. That's hard to say all together at one time. Or as I call it, my (laughs) ex-wife. Either way. God, I hope you guys are still friends and she's got a sense of humor. We're we're, we're actually great friends. (laughs) Jeez. Well, Black Death, bubonic plague, started in China in 1331. Now, not a lot of people know that. They think it started in Europe and it didn't. Started in the uh, 1300s, uh, and then by the mid-1300s, it had spread to Europe, and it taken out a third of its population, which it's astronomical al- already. Now, King Henry the uh, Third, who was who was reigning in England at the time, you know, he was scared to death of it, and it, now it was caused by this Yersinia pestis virus. Have you ever heard of that? No, I don't think I have. <laughs> well, it circulates. Um, among wild rodents bitten by infected fleas. Did you know that? You know, now that you've said it, I, I knew what you were talking about. I didn't know what the proper name of it oh, was. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, this is, uh, let me tell you the symptoms. This is how you know you've been bitten by a flea with, with bubonic plague. Now, first you get swollen lymph nodes. And those lymph nodes are swollen in the area where you're bitten. They can grow as large as chicken eggs. So, oh, wow. so for example, if you get bitten close to your groin, you got a big old chicken egg in your groin. That's fun. I'm all for that. <laughs> I mean, how do you make that happen? Is there some kind of like grease or something you rub on it? Or how do you attract them? <laughs> or your armpit or your neck. That, yeah. So, you know, uh, you get high chills, you know, or a high fever with chills. Uh, you get, you vomit and that's kind of more inducive of of like flu-like symptoms. But the, but the big, big giveaway is the lymph nodes. And it doesn't even happen until like three to seven days after you first get bitten. And, you know, you get the low blood pressure, you get the cool hands and arms and your legs and you can't breathe very well. And you've got the mental confusion and... Your blood vessels begin to start leaking in your body. And then I've literally had that the last three weeks. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> you guys have been through the ringer. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's not good. Not good at all. But you at least you don't have bubonic plague. Let's at least have that thing to thank. So and uh so also your vomiting blood and the kicker, you can bleed from your eyes, your mouth, and your bottom, your anus. Mm-hmm. Like all at one time until your body finally goes into septic shock and your, your organs begin to, to completely fail. Now, what the kicker about this is, 
this can be treated with uh, antibiotics. Yeah, they just didn't have antibiotics. They did not have yeah. antibiotics. You know, they weren't even invented <laughs> until 1928, and that was by accident. Did you know that? That's what happens when you have moldy bread. Yeah, well, it's funny. I know. they. He had the moldy bread, and yeah, I actually, it's it's from the mold juice. Did you know that? That's how he discovered penicillin. I did not. Yeah, it's it, they called it mold juice, and then they, they came up with the word penicillin, because I guess it sounds mm, better. That sounds good. <laughs> Sounds better. But no, this is some seriously disgusting stuff. And once the once ever you know, once somebody died from bubonic plague, they would either bury the bodies in just this big pit because there's so many people dying at once and just bury them, or they would put them in a pile and burn them. So they were so afraid of getting this disease, which they should because it was very catchy. You know, they, there were rats everywhere. And you really, I mean, everybody had fleas on them. Everybody had them. Everybody had fleas. Everybody had lice. Everybody had all kinds of disgusting ticks on them at all times back then. That's not like a real fun time to live. Yeah. No, it's not. No. You know, throwing slop, you know, feces and everything out the windows because they didn't have indoor plumbing. All that stuff was just on the ground and you're walking through it. Could you imagine how it smelled (laughs) <laughs> when you're walking down the cobblestone no. streets, you're thinking, you know, we're thinking, oh, it's so romantic, you know, walking down these old ancient streets. And that's not how it was then. Just walking down <laughs> under a window and getting urine splashed all over you. Or worse. That's not fun. I don't know that there could be much worse. No. Urine splashed on you is pretty, pretty <laughs> much right there. That's pretty piss poor, huh? <laughs> God, now I'm doing dad jokes. But that's, yeah, please stop. I, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll, but, you know, that's that's a bubonic plague. I could go on for days, but we don't have time for that. Absolutely. But that was very interesting. That's It's kind of, like I said, I think a lot of people know what the bubonic plague is, mm-hmm. or at least they've heard of it. But as far as knowing all the symptoms of what would happen, I, I think most people probably didn't know. So it was, it was a fun little segment to have on. Well, thanks. And there's still 650 cases reported in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In central in Central Africa and Madagascar and in Peru. That's what's really sad <laughs> is the fact that in the society that we live in today, mm-hmm. that where where penicillin is readily available, that there are still some countries that it, it's just not uh, a luxury like we're used right. to it being here. I know. Now there were 650 cases reported. Now I don't know if they all die because obviously they can get their hands on the kind of antibiotics that would take care of this, but. Still, the fact that they even get it tells you how they live. So hmm. it's it's just it's sad. so sad. It really is. So yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. No. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, thank you for coming on and sharing this little uh, tidbit of uh, bubonic plague and spreading the plague of Christmas with us. We greatly appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're welcome, and I'll see myself out. And we're. So sorry that you get, didn't get to join us on this episode. I know. I'm sorry about that. But it was supposed to be, but apparently I'm falling apart at yes, the same Yes, you are falling apart. So I had two straight nights to where uh, I came in at 7 o'clock and got hit with a migraine instantly and went to bed and slept until 7 the next morning. I went to work, felt fine all day long, come home. We recorded one short and was supposed to record with Leslie and was supposed to record that little segment you heard at the beginning all last night. And lo and behold, another migraine hit. Yeah. And uh, and when I have migraines, I can't read. I, can't, I mean, I can't talk. 
No, you my, literally scared the crap out of me. I thought you was having a stroke. Because my, my, my migraines, I've had them since I was 13. They have like stroke-like symptoms. Oh, my gosh. You guys, I was so scared. I was so scared. <laughs> You've seen me have those before. Not like back-to-back and not to this extent. But yeah, I literally, I can sit there and look at a word that could be like as simple as and or the, and I can't even tell you what it is. Yeah. And so, but yeah, so trying to read a script or trying to follow along wasn't going to happen last night. Even though it was all written out and ready, Mm -hmm. it just, I couldn't read it. Yeah. As bad as that sounds. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so Tracy, we had to, uh, Leslie was nice enough to do them this morning Uh before she headed out out of town. So we did three of them, but Tracy wasn't here. So the first three won't have Tracy with them. Yeah. Y'all be all right. I know, but we want to choose part of that segment. I know. I'm sorry, guys. But I'm glad you feel a little better today, so that's good. Yeah, I'm just trying to hurry up and record before another one hits. Oh, no. Don't even say that. Propel. Ow. Telling you. It's propel water. (laughs) What did it for me? Anyways, um, we've kept you waiting long enough. It's been a fun show so far. It has. And uh, without further ado... I do. Let's listen to Mr. Keith Linder from the Bothell Hell House and his newest book, Attachment. Hey, guys, I'm excited to have this repeat guest. A lot of you guys will remember Keith Linder. He was the author of the Bothell Hell House. Not only the author, but he lived through that mess for some five years or so, him and his girlfriend, Tina. And um, he's got a new book out, which is called Attachments. It's basically a, a, a part two to where uh, Bothell Hell House took or kind of left off. Uh, Keith Linder, thanks for coming on with us. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for uh, having me. It feels good to uh, be back on your uh, show. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. It's going good. I've been looking forward to this. We set this thing up about a month ago. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah. But that just shows how busy you are because I was, I was, uh, had enough time to do it like the, the, the next day after you talked to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm ready. I was ready. I was ready. So, Keith, I'm going to jump into this. We we posted the the interview we did last year. It was last uh, March, a matter of fact. So we posted that yesterday. So if people hadn't heard it, they got a chance to listen to it before this one. So we wouldn't rehash a bunch of the same stuff. But some of it we kind of have to rehash. Um, obviously, you went through a lot of different things from... Bibles being burnt in a house to six 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 and other things being basically written on your wall, your place being demolished. You brought in people to kind of look and see what they could what they could help you with. Uh, eventually, Ghost Adventures, the Zach Bagans and the group came out. Uh, if I understand it correctly. There was um, a little bit of what he took as ridicule from Tina, your girlfriend at the time. Um, they basically almost bumped heads in the dark. Um, he kind of did a typical Zach Bagans, you know, oh, my God. And she, you know, basically called him out and said, quit being such a chicken or something. And he kind of took offense to it. And then they wrap up their filming, which was only there for, what, five hours as far as Zach and the gang. They didn't do anything during the times that you said things were the most active, which was during the day they did their investigation at night and possibly because of being a little ticked off at Tina calling him out a little bit, they leave. They don't have any contact with you guys until like the day before the show comes out. And when it comes out, you're kind of surprised to learn that uh, they claim they didn't find any, anything and they kind of made you guys look like you were hoaxing the whole thing. Am I kind of, 
on the the level there? Uh, yeah, that's correct. You kind of hit all the uh, the important cylinders, I would say, uh, with our interaction uh, with the uh, Ghost Adventures crew. One of the questions I occasionally I get online or via email is from somebody, usually a diehard fan of the show, and 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 that's okay. But they'll they'll come at me incorrectly and say. Oh, it was a hoax, or it was faked, or Tina did this. And nothing could be farther from the truth if you watch that episode, because the the conclusion of the episode um, is no evidence. There's no evidence uh, from their point of view during the short period of time that they were there, and you were right, it was five hours there's no evidence of a paranormal event because they didn't experience any. There's also no evidence of hoaxing. Uh, it always interests me how individuals leap to the conclusion, well, if Ghost Adventures doesn't find any evidence, it has to be a hoax. Um, anybody in the paranormal who's been in the paranormal in a sincere way with longevity and mileage will tell you you don't base a house as being hoaxed or pranked or the people are over-exaggerating if the investigators don't find anything. You need evidence to prove any conclusion. It could be paranormal. It could be non-paranormal. It could be raccoons in the attic. You need evidence to reach a conclusion. The thing that Ghost Adventures failed to do was two things. Um educate their viewers as to say, you know what? We came, we saw, we didn't conquer, we left with nothing. It's inconclusive. Me, Zach Baggins, I would love to come back to this house and spend more time. And that would have been game over. That, that, that would have really took their listeners and viewers and put them 20 years ahead of what they currently know about the paranormal. Because most of Ghost Adventures... I can say most, but a percentage of are not really in tune to the paranormal. They're just in tune to Zach Baggins. And that's unfortunate for me and Tina because our interest uh, for having them there was always sincere. We were always legit about what we saw, what we were experiencing. Um, we never had to exaggerate. Um, three Bibles did catch fire. Uh, I kept records of it. I kept data of it. I got video. I got audio. Uh, two Bibles are still missing to this day. Uh, I would never alter that number on any one of those accounts because they did happen. But it was unfortunate to the sense of making Tina, more so Tina than me, look like the fall guy, if you will. And you're right. Tina and Zach almost butted heads because all of us during that scene were walking in pitch blackness. You couldn't see the other person around you. And even if people rewatch that episode, Tina is walking around the kitchen because she smells burnt sage. Tina, like me, knows anytime we have it smelled burnt sage in the house, we know something's about to go down. So Tina's looking around in the total darkness doing what she's been asked to do by Zach and Dave Schrader and all the other team. And she's smelling burnt sage. So she sort of leans into the darkness, homing in 
on the safe, which is in plain view to the viewer on the kitchen table. And I think she even utters a few times, hey, does anybody here smell burnt sage? Um, but the reality is of it, of how that really played out, she told Zach um, to stop acting like the P word. And <laughs> everybody with the microphone or headset in their ear, the bug in their ear, just busted out laughing. Even Zach busted out laughing. And it was funny. We, we, we all thought it was funny. We did not know Tina because we have no experience with Ghost Adventures, that Zach is known throughout his TV show as the guy for quote-unquote being the scaredy cat. We didn't give him that moniker. That's a moniker he earned himself, and that's part of the marketing of Ghost Adventures. Um, so when Tina said that, everybody in the garage uh, started laughing, and everybody's laughing in each other's ear. So now you fast forward two and a half months when the episode airs, and me and Tina are watching it. We've not been given any sort of forewarning of what's coming, and Zach utters through voiceover, not live talk, this is voiceover, which means it was probably done in a studio of his experience when he almost headbutted with Tina. And so listeners saw that, viewers saw that, and came to all the wrong conclusions, and that's unfortunate. So after this, you know, it's 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 no big secret. By the end of 2016, you moved out of the house. You and Tina had split up as boyfriend girlfriend, but were remaining friends. Um, is that is your relationship still the same, or has it changed uh, over the last two years since we've talked? Uh, it's forever altered. We are still friends, but we're distant friends. Um, but I talked to you last. We were still maintaining some communique. Uh, it's always been my hope that we can reconcile, but that has not yet happened. Uh, Tina knew of book one. She knew of book two. Uh, in Tina's fashion, she gave me her blessings. Um, but we have not reconciled. We're not enemies. Uh, I have not talked to her in about a year and a half. Um, she still lives in the Seattle Pacific Northwest area. Um, to my knowledge, she's not had any residual activity like I have. Uh, I'm pretty sure if she did, I would be the first person to call. But um, she has not. And then, like I said, before I release book one and before I release book two, I let her know. And book one has been out a year and a half. Book two has been out maybe three months. And um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's where we're at. But I, I, I talk about how that relationship broke down. Unfortunately, um, the Demons in Seattle episode was one of three straws that broke the camel's back. And I, would, and I feel safe in saying the Ghost Adventures portrayal was the major straw out of the three. That's unfortunate. Um, before we get into the book, I want to talk about a little bit of uh, what I, I would call, hopefully, what you would consider vindication. Because after the betrayal on Ghost Adventures, you actually had a British paranormal team come in, live with you for basically a week uh, and or, or a little longer, and, and do a documentary that was recently released, which is phenomenal. We'll post a link to that uh, about the time this airs. But tell me a little bit about how that came to be 
the kind of evidence they caught and how that made you feel knowing this is put out, showing all the evidence that Ghost Adventures didn't catch? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, one of the things, when Ghost Adventures left, they left uh, the end of 2014. The episode aired, I think it was February 25th of 2015. I'm still in the house. Tina's still, Tina just moved out. Um, the activity by any means is not stopping just because Ghost Adventures didn't find anything. Entities, especially these entities, they know how to buy their time. So now it's just me in the home. And to be quite honest with you, I had to make a decision because I was really nervous and scared about living in the home by myself. I know it's going to sound weird to some because we've seen and went through so much already. Why would I be scared and nervous now? Uh, well, two answers. We were always nervous and scared. But however, me and Tina had each other's back. There was two people in the home. So there was always the theory of safety and numbers. Well, now Tina's moved out. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is that what the spirits want? Poltergeist, like most malevolent spirits, are all about isolation. Therefore, I'm in the home now. Maybe they're going to really take the gloves off and have at me. So I had two decisions to make. I was going to either move out, cut my losses, or drill down and say, you know what? We told the truth. Uh, we didn't lie. And if I leave now, um, I don't have access to the house. I, another team I doubt will come in here. And if I leave now, the epitaph of this case in our experience is going to be Demons in Seattle episode, whatever that number is, on, on the Travel Channel. So instead of telling the landlord I'm going to move out, I decided to go to the Seattle Public Library and spend a considerable amount of time reading about poltergeists because somebody had mentioned to me briefly that I think you have a poltergeist in your home. I never heard the term. I only remember the movie back in the early 80s or whatever. So I spent, I went to the fifth floor and found an area on the fifth floor, downtown Seattle, uh, of a shelf for parapsychologists. And one of the books I picked up mentioned Steve Mara. Steve Mara is a parapsychologist out of the UK. And he's been mentioned as a reference as a what we call an IT subject matter expert, even though he doesn't regard himself as an expert, but he's regarded as a person with knowledge of poltergeist phenomena. He investigates them. He's been doing it for 30-odd years. So I did a Hail Mary. I emailed him, and not knowing or thinking that he would ever reply back, and I, I sent him all the video, all the audio, gave him the video diary, the written diary, and told him what was going on in my home, he replied back with more questions. I gave him more answers. And then after probably a, a series of three or four months of vetting, uh, him and his assistant, uh, Don Phillips, who's also been in the paranormal for 30-odd years, uh, had made a decision to come to live in the house. They, they're, they're in the UK, mind you, so they're going to travel 6,000 miles and it was agreed at the offset of um, when they come, they're going to live in the house. And they did. They lived in the house trip one, meaning they came January of 2016. 
and stayed in the house for one week. And by one week, I really mean that. I mean, they had a room. They put their stuff up. They brought so many crates, so many what they refer to as rigs with paranormal equipment. It was very funny and interesting to see them get that stuff through customs <laughs> and customs drilling them on all these questions about Dude, who are you guys? NASA, what are you what are you, what are you guys doing with all this stuff? And they have to explain what this is for and that's for and why they're using it for fear of, you know, you're talking to customs about ghost and EVP and EMF readings and all that. You don't think they're gonna let you in the country, but <laughs> long story short, they did. And yeah, as you saw in the uh, Demons in Seattle uncovered a documentary uh, free and available on YouTube for all to see. Um, it was an interesting investigation. Um, I tell people, especially those who've watched and are familiar with the Ghost Adventures uh, episode, to watch both investigations. Go back and watch Ghost Adventures investigation of the short period of time of them being in the house. And then watch Steve and Dawn's documentary. It's an hour and a half documentary. It's in 1080p. And you will see how it was pretty much um, almost certain why one team got evidence and why the other one didn't. Number one, especially with Portuguese phenomena, is you really have to live in the home. This is not something, this is not drive-by research. You, five hours is not even a second and when it comes to paranormal investigations. And this is not me saying that. This is the best of the best saying that. Steve Merrindam had 18-hour um, investigative research for the entire time that they were there. Every day they're researching, investigating the house from top to bottom for 18 hours for six to seven and a half days. And that was just week one. And it's the difference between them and... Uh, I guess Zach and crew is night and day. I mean, not, I don't ever fault Ghost Adventures for not finding evidence because I know Portuguese investigation um, is extremely difficult. You, there are so many constraints out of your control that you have no control over. So you're really shooting in the dark, but you limit yourself by the amount of time you spend in the home. And Ghost Adventures, like you said at the beginning of the show, I've always been honest when I tell people, majority of the activity happened during the day. Go, Portuguese don't care about a lockdown. They don't care about nightfall. At least ours didn't. They pretty much acted up primarily in the day. And if you've seen the documentary of Steve and Dawn, 90% of their investigation is during the daytime. And you have to pay attention to what the spirits are giving you and exploit it, and that's why, like you said, um, the documentary speaks for itself. So do, do you, the question, there I, I kind of brought it up, I didn't really ask the question, I made an assumption, but do you feel somewhat vindicated since this documentary oh, has come out? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, I think chapter one of book two uh, is titled Substantiated, because you have to understand, um, we caught a lot of hell from the Demons in Seattle episode. I mean, I'm talking death threats. I'm talking trolls online. I'm talking about people looking me up, Tina up. Just, I mean, it was just 
venom after venom. And yeah, I know it's all virtual, it's all internet, what rolls should roll off your back, but still, it's just, it was just ugly. And then other people, I mean, in paranormal teams, uh, other clergy that are who've worked with Ghost Adventures that were already in talk with me and Tina, they just cut up and ran. I mean, it was cold for a while of us receiving any more help because people thought, oh, they made it up, da-da-da-da-da, Ghost Adventures didn't find anything, da-da-da-da-da-da. And so, yeah, now when the other evidence comes out, the real evidence, yeah, you feel substantiated. You feel, once again, like, yeah, we knew what we were talking about. Um, you almost want to spike the football in the end zone sort of <laughs> feeling because uh, keep in mind, people who come up with their paranormal claims are automatically, well, once the claim is out the gate, are labeled hoaxers. And a lot of people won't go through the rings that me and Tina did, especially what I did, to receive help because they their fear of ridicule, their fear of being not taken seriously, called crazy, called attention seeking, and they just run. They don't they don't even talk about it. But now with this new information coming out, I've had people who've had similar experience come up to me via email and actually say thank you. And I'm like, for what? It's like for, you know, for drilling down, tripling down, sticking to your guns because, you know, I, I couldn't do what you did. And, and I feel gratitude for that. I feel substantiated is a strong word, but it's an accurate, it's an accurate word. Um, like I said, Dawn and Steve vetted me uh, for three months. They interviewed me. They interviewed people around the house, previous tenants who lived in the house, neighbors and whatnot. Spent days and hours at the county records office. Things that Ghost Adventures didn't even come close to doing. And like I said, evidence speaks for itself. But definitely, yeah, I, I, I totally feel vindicated and substantiated, and I and I and and I'm proud. I, I wear that with a, a badge of honor, as does Tina, and we should. We never lied. We didn't. We didn't come out this seeking fame or fortune. We found a paranormal community in a rough way when a plant went flying in our house. That's how we were introduced to the paranormal. So, so yeah, I definitely feel substantiated. We didn't talk about this in the last interview, but watching the documentary, which the documentary is fantastic. It actually, um, it, it's actually one of the better documentaries I've seen as far as detailing an investigation. And these guys, man, left no stone unturned. They did a fantastic job. And, and I advise anybody to go, you know, watch this thing. And like I said, we'll post a link to it uh, after this interview comes out. We'll post a link so people can get to it. But in in the um, in the documentary, there was a, a I guess a conversation with I think they said I could be wrong on this. I think they said it was a priest, but the gentleman was talking about the house being built on top of a uh, Native American burial ground. And I don't yeah. think we touched on that in the, in the first uh, interview we did. Uh, we might not have, but uh, just to give your listeners a familiarity, um, yeah, so Bothell, Washington, located in Pacific Northwest, 20 minutes outside of Seattle. Um, we found out um, through research, and like I said, that was Father Roy, who was in the documentary, 
And um, Father Roy at the time was like 94 years old. And he's been living in the Pacific Northwest since 94 years. So he, w- he, w- he was a good person to reveal, or, or I guess confirm, that Bothell and the surrounding area had a lot of Native American land. There was a lot of Native American history. Uh, the county that Bothell is in is called Snohomish County, uh, Snohomish Tribe. Skycomish tribe and as you saw in the documentary there's a river or a creek I should say a creek that runs through the back of our house well through research of Bothell like I said anybody can google Bothell Washington and go to the Wikipedia page that's maintained by the city of Bothell and see for themselves the history or the that Native Americans played in the immediate area now once again going back to ghost adventures not trying to but this calls for it you remember there was a portion of the show where Ghost Adventures openly admitted that they themselves researched Bothell and could not find any Native American history. And when I saw that in the episode, me and Tina, amongst our friends, our mouths just dropped because we knew that was not true. Um, we don't make that up. That's just a historical inaccuracy. And like I said, anybody listening today can Google that and see that Bothell, more so than any other area, had a lot of Native Americans, had a lot of Native American skirmishes with settlers during the mid-1800s. And you might think, well, why is it important to Native American? Well, you have to understand, one of the wall writings or some of the wall writings in my office were written in Native American language. The, I'm talking about the upside-down stick figure. Uh, we knew early on that that was a Native American symbol, and once we researched and confirmed, we found out, yes, that is a, indeed a Native American symbol. It means a man has died or a man ha- is about to die. And when it says, um, when a man has died, this is the Native American definition, not mine, it's usually from smallpox, okay, or the Native American male was murdered, okay? And... The research of Bothell, Washington, over 500 Native Americans in the mid-1800s died as a result of smallpox spread. This is immediately in the Bothell area, Vancouver area, Pacific Northwest area, Northern Oregon area, where over 500,000 Native Americans perished due to the smallpox outbreak. Um, 500 were immediately in the vicinity or in Bothell, Washington. So that in itself confirmed what Father Roy was telling us verbally. You know, when Father Roy and others tell Stephen Dawn something, yeah, that's good information to have, but we got to go vet that. We got to go verify that. We just can't say, oh, Father Roy said there was Native Americans here. Okay, all right, check check that off the list. No, you got to go research that. It's a good clue. It's an excellent clue. And digging through the county records office uh, combined with the wall markings on the wall, which is calligraphy or pictography. Um, Yeah, and uh, to add the icing on the cake of that, Don and Steve received a lot of EVPs where the, the voices admitted on the voice recorders that, yeah, we're Native Americans, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some of that going on here. So you take all that and you just come up with a treasure trove of some of the phenomena in the home 
is linked to Native American spirits. All right. and, and that makes sense. It does make sense. So let's go from that, the new book, Attachments, Poltergeist of Washington State. So tell me about where the, old, where the first book finishes, where does attachments come in? What, what is in this book for the, somebody who hasn't read the book out there? You're, you're wanting to tell them what they're going to see in this book, what they're going to read in this book. What is okay. attachments? Okay, so uh, good question. So the Bothell Hell House, the book that's been out for about a year and a half now, is told in chronological order of May 1st, 2012, when me and Tina moved in. And pretty much goes all the way to March of April of 2016. I believe it stopped short two months before I moved out the house. Toward the end of the Bothell Hell House is where you see D, uh, Steve and Don Phillips enter. Uh, they do their first investigation uh, in January of that year, 2016, and then leave and make their findings public. So I'm still in the house. Uh, Attachments, Portuguese of Washington State, which is part two of the Bothell Hell House, picks up right where the Bothell Hell House leaves off in that when you turn to chapter one, I'm still in the house, and chapter one is titled Substantiated. Uh, we are now making the findings public. Uh, Steve and Dawn are now giving lectures around the world as to what they found. They're sharing their research with their colleagues, their peers. But Keith Linder is still in the house. And up until that time, it was always, I'm going to stand my ground and lead the house on my own terms. Well, I had made a decision to leave after Dawn and Steve found what they found. I thought, okay, now I can leave. Okay. Um, the activity up to now has been a level one activity. On a scale of one to five, it's been a low level one. Uh, things are happening, but they're very intermittent. They're not violent. They're just weird phenomena. An example, lights off and on, garage door going up by itself, the poking and the prodding, and the what they call is a port or ass port, meaning objects are being teleported uh, throughout the house. So that's still going on. That's never let up, okay? And the, the, the knocking noises. But Steve and Don have captured all that. So now i made the decision to move. i got three months left in the house. And one of the questions I've often been asked while living in the house, and it's a fair question, one that sort of kept me up at night, is if you move, what if they follow you? What if you get followed? And I can't answer that question while I'm still in the house, but it's still on my mind. So attachments is pretty much answering that question of will Keith Linder be followed? And long story short, yes, I was followed. But keep in mind the three months leading to me moving, the activity is starting to show signs of resurfacing. And by that, I mean level two, level three. Um, there's new wall writings. There's stuff seeping from the wall. Uh, there's water puddles. There's more knocking and banging. Things are intensifying while at the same time I am preparing my move. 
So I informed Steve and Dawn because we maintain communication of what's happening, and they decide to come back. Dawn and Steve come back to do a second investigation. This time they're going to stay a week and a half. And to even, I guess, put more of a finer point on it, they bought Nick Kyle. Nick Kyle was then the former president of the SSPR, one of the oldest uh, paranormal organizations in Europe, who has an extensive background in telekinesis, RSPK, and poltergeist-related phenomena. He's coming as an observer, as you saw in the documentary. So he comes along with Steve and Dawn. They spend a week and a half in the home and find way more than they found uh, the first time. And the two other questions in the book, or I'm talking about attachments, that were not answered, because um, now, you know, the question is, will Keith be followed? That was question number one for me writing book two. Question number two was, well, Stephen Dawn and other paranormal teams have found evidence that your house is haunted. We get that. Okay, we, we, we got that. What we don't got yet, Keith, is why. Why this house which sits in a neighborhood of 80 to 120 other houses. All of them were built in 2005. They all look alike, sort of. And your house is the house from hell. What makes this house different from the house across the street? Why you, why Tina? The answer to that question of why the Bothell Hell House was haunted, or the question gets answered in book two. Book two, through more research, me more fact-finding, um, spending more hours in the offices I just referenced, uh, brought to the conclusion of why that house was indeed the house from hell. The Bothell house, I mean, the Bothell hell house, the book, I revealed that I was able to catch up with a previous tenant. Her name was Rhonda. Rhonda had a family of three children and a husband who lived in the house five years before we did. And they did have have activity. Well, this is a continuation of my conversation with Rhonda to finally find out something awful, very bad. I mean, very bad. I don't feel comfortable saying it on the air, but it's it's in the book in pretty grave detail of what happened in the house uh, to Rhonda and her family in 2008 and 2009. Um, that explains or pretty much confirms why this house and any other house, in conjunction with the Native American stuff I already told you. Um, and then, I guess, question number three, uh, going back to Ghost Adventures episode, uh, going back to the wall writings that you saw on the wall in that episode, another question I always got asked is, what is that stuff made of? out of it's black it's acrylic um it doesn't look like paint but it looks like paint what is that stuff you see when ghost of Richards came to the house i was i really thought they were going to take some of that with them i know in the episode they were throwing all kind of innuendos out oh it looks like paint or it looks like spray paint well if you're a researcher then chisel a piece off you know, that's what you're here for, right? And take it and have it analyzed, you know? 
Um, y'all got the pockets to do that. Well, they didn't do that. So me now living in the home by myself, I took the initiative to do that for them or for me or for anybody. And I did find out what that black stuff is made out of. And it goes back to the Native America. It's not paint or it's not man-made paint. Um, it's 100% organic, which is not surprising when you look at all the other documented cases where poltergeists have done wall writing. Some do it in crayon, some do it in shoe polish, some do it in pencil, pen, some do it in paint, some do it in ketchup, some do it in feces, uh, some do it in other organic material like blood or plasma. Um, so yeah, when we when I had the black substance analyzed, um, yeah, we came to a conclusion of what it was and what it is, and that too is in book two, Attachments, Portuguese of Washington State. One of the things I like about both of these books is they're both interactive. Um, you know, so many books you see, it's just straight up text. With these books, I mean, there are pictures, there are diagrams, there are uh, Google searches, all kinds of stuff through there to really hit home as to what it yeah. is. And uh, I, I like that, man. It's just a different format than I've seen in any book. And both of your books are set up the exact same way, so I really appreciate the fact that you did it that way. Yeah, that was the IT side of me. Uh, when I wrote book one, especially, I was trying to think, okay, this book has to, you know, it's going to be around a while. People are going to, who study poltergeist phenomena, are going to read this book one day. How can I make it easier for them to understand what I'm talking about, what we saw and witnessed? And you're right, there are, there are links, URL links in there to where if you read the book, or a chapter where me and Tina are sitting in bed and we hear a loud bang, okay? By then, that's probably the time I had cameras erected in the home. So some of those bangs got recorded and captured, but most importantly, what got captured was our response. Our response, because it's unpredictable, we didn't know the bang was coming or an ironing board thrown in a room was coming, and our response is genuine. It's not rehearsed. And a lot of paranormal you don't you don't you you read it the, the person is telling you that but you really don't feel it like they feel it well i'm hoping and as some people have told me who read the book have listened to that audio have watched the video and they feel it because they don't know when the surprise is coming and i, I don't time stamp it as to when it's coming because i want the, the, the reader to be caught off guard also the voices uh steven don captured over 426 EVPs, uh, majority of class A, class B. You can listen to that yourself and hear the voices. They're not like the voices you have to strain your ear that you hear on TV, on a travel channel or anything like that. These are clear voices. These are conversations underneath Steve and Dawn and Nick Kyle's investigation. Um, this, this is a lot of stuff, diagrams, graphs, audio, video, that for the reader, when you read the book, yeah, get through it the first time, just run through it, but really start dissecting the links I put in there because that's where the reader's going to be like, aha, oh, wow, oh, that is a Portuguese, whoa, I heard a voice, yeah, it's so clear, oh, that was a female voice, oh, it's angelic, it's ambient, 
oh, it's talking. It's having a conversation. You know, who is it talking to? Who is Ray? Where did Ray come from? You know, who's telling Ray what to do? All these things the reader's going to hear, and then they're going to really become more of Keith, of Team Keith, I like to say, because their hesitance, their skepticism, is going to slowly be removed by the time they finish uh, book two. Let me ask you this. I know we talked about vindication earlier, but there is a stigma, obviously, with the haunting. When we first put... Um, when we first put the episode up, I remember there was a bunch of people, oh my God, this is such an awesome story. And then there was a few people, obviously having listeners all over the, the world in the United States. Yeah. We had some people right, you know, underneath of the, the link that we posted and, and say, you know, I live 15 minutes from this house and, you know, this guy's full of crap or whatever. But even the documentary, I noticed it was listed as, uh, I, I believe that the, the tagline was, or subtitle was, the most controversial haunting in America. What has to happen to lose that stigma, do you think? Uh, the paranormal, and this is my critique of the paranormal, has a long way to go to lose that stigma. In book two, I tell people, and I, and I tell the listener, our, our house, our ordeal, me and Tina's ordeal, never should have been controversial. We are not reporting anything new to the paranormal community. If people go back and read, not watch TV, go back and read Portuguese cases from the 14th, 15th, 16th century, go, matter of fact, go back even further, and you read what's happening around the world in homes, um, you will see that none of our claims are outside the norm of poltergeist activity. That's why when Steve Mara and Nick Kyle and other parapsychologists catch wind of my case, um, what I'm reporting to them doesn't blow them away. They've heard that before. They've been in homes with that before, infield and other cases. Uh, they've seen that before. The Mammoth Portuguese case, the Connecticut case, all these cases, the Bell Witch case, all these cases on record where similar phenomena has been reported throughout the world, fires and whatnot. What impresses these parapsychologists about my case is the level of frequency. That's new to them. They say, we normally go in a house like yours, Keith Flinder, and see one phenomena. Okay? One. And we're there months. Stephen Dahmer only in my house two and a half weeks. You know, others, Bill Price may rest in peace. They, they've been in homes for years, 18 months, and they've seen one phenomena. Steve, and people can read Steve's book, Fire and Whispers, where he gives his own account of what he saw. It has nothing to do with me. This is Steve Merritt giving his own account. Um, trolls who write underneath descriptions on YouTube videos, I can't control. Nobody can control them. They have a job to do. Um, that's their lot in life. Uh, I feel sad for them. Um, you know, who wants to grow up to be a troll or who accepts that responsibility willingly? But I get it. It comes with the territory. Uh, you got skeptics who are forever going to be skeptics out there. But these trolls, even now, they can't well, they can't fight back the information out there now. They, they try, but they lose horribly. 
they can't fight, you know, they, they can't. You know, you can say all you can say underneath a YouTube video. Oh, I live three houses down. What, what, well, how you prove it? Prove it. How to prove, prove to prove, prove to, yeah, you live three houses down. You know, you can't. How are you going to combat Nick Kyle? How are you going to combat Steve Mara, Don Phillips? We didn't even talk about the U.S. paranormal team who lived in a house for a month and uh, three and a half weeks in the home, who house monitored the home eight months before they moved into the home for a month. So you take their investigation, which was a year almost, uh, and add it to Steve and Don's. So all that stuff, um, trolls can't combat that. But they're going to still say what they say because, like I said, that's their lot in life, and that's sad. Have you had any contact with any any residents in the house since you left? I have not reached out to the people, meaning the husband and wife that live in the house right now. I have not talked to them. Um, I know they moved into the house two months after I moved out. That's just the nature of the Pacific Northwest and the housing market at that time. Uh, I do know they were informed of the activity. Um, about a month or so after they moved in, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Rich, who's, who has a chapter named after him in book one, uh, he lives a few houses down from the Bothell House. So he, he, he always combats or can't combat the trolls on the internet because he still lives two houses or three houses from my house. He emailed me one day and said that the people who live in the house now uh, put a blue door. The house, they, they took the, the white door and replaced it with a blue door. Kind of, it's a dark navy blue door that's totally con anti-contrast the house. So I, I went online, you know, Google's your friend, and Googled what does a blue door signify on a home. And multiple websites and multiple cultures around the world, including the U.S., said a blue door on a home is supposed to symbolize peace, tranquility. It's supposed to ward off negative and evil spirits. And uh, the, the family are from India. So the blue door in for, for, for that culture means to keep negative spirits outside the home. People always ask me, well, how come you don't go over and talk to them to see if they're having activity? And uh, I spent a lot of time answering that question in book two, but I'll give you the gist of it today. Um, I don't feel a need to go talk to the current occupants of the home to ask them are they having activity because to do so would, would betray what me and Tina went through. One of the things people mis make a mistake about poltergeist phenomena in regards to the paranormal, and this is because, like I say, the TV shows that they watch, poltergeist phenomena has nothing to do with the house. Okay? It's not about the house when it comes to poltergeist. Poltergeist has to do with the people living in the house. This Bothell house I keep talking about had five families live in the house before me and Tina moved in. Only one has that I found, it was hard to find them, but I found them, do I know for sure had activity. It's quite possible the other families did not have activity. I'm, I'm leaning towards they did not. Um, Portuguese can buy their time. There's a whole bunch of variables in play that can trigger a Portuguese phenomena. You have to imagine it was five years in between Rhonda and her family and me and Tina. 
there were families that lived in the house before we arrived. I'm not talking about Ron. I'm talking about two, maybe two and a half or three families in between us two that didn't have anything. You know, going back to Rich, he said he knew the family who lived in the house before us. His daughter played with their kids. They were a happy-go-lucky family, and they didn't have anything. The activity or the spirits are still there. It's just something of a level. Steve Mara describes it as a synergy, sort of speak. Um, poetry guys don't haunt houses. They haunt people. Um, I'm not going to tell the people living in the house now everything that we went through so they can be going walking on eggshells looking over their corner or looking over their shoulder because believe it or not that's all you need for that house for things to start happening again if you start poking around in the dark looking for phenomena in that house that phenomena will find you how the phenomena found me was I'm just analytical. I, I'm, I'm, there's pros and cons for being analytical. Where poetry guys are concerned, there's a lot of cons with that. Because for me, when I left a room to go get a glass of water and come back and my room office light is off, I know I left it on. I don't have any kids in the house. We don't have any kids. Tina's downstairs watching TV. She's not upstairs. This is a two-level home. I've come back multiple times already on different days. Why is my light off? Why is the TV off? Why is the TV on a different channel than what I left it? These are the things that's happening. I know I'm not losing my mind. So what do I do? I go buy cameras. I go buy monitoring devices. And I put them in my room because I've talked to the electrician. I've had the electrician come to my house and they can't find anything wrong. Comcast can't find anything wrong. So now I'm thinking, okay, let me just fill my room of when I leave. And true, lo and behold, my cameras, when I come back, are turned upside down. Or they're unplugged. Or the SD card is missing. So these are the things that the entities, when you start giving them attention, will escalate the activity and it becomes a dueling match versus me versus them because I go out and buy more cameras. Well, they do the same thing with my new cameras that they did with the old cameras. And then finally, when objects start flying and levitating, who doesn't want to get that on camera? So I go buy more cameras, and the spirits are like, oh, he's really ratcheting it up. Okay, well, we'll start throwing cameras and so forth. And that's what I want the people to understand about poltergeist. It's not a residual haunting. Had our house been a residual haunting, then yeah, you're right. Anybody who moves into that house is obviously going to have noticeable activity. But poltergeist is not a residual haunting. Poltergeist is an intelligent haunting. Therefore, they can pick and choose when they want to interact with the house occupants. Are there spirits in the house right now? Yeah. But it's so low level and docile that I believe the current occupants um, don't notice it. Now, I'm pretty sure if I was to ask them if I saw them at a gas station one day, hey, anything going on in that house, anything weird? I know they got stories to tell. I know they're like, yeah, I put my key over here some days and it goes missing and I find it over here one day and I just shrug it off. I know there's spirits here, but I don't go looking in the dark. I know they have that, but I don't need to. T- I don't need to verbally talk to them to get that confirmation. Let me ask you this, because like you, your definition a few seconds ago of poltergeist is basically an intelligent entity 
that pick and choose. Now, we've done tons of poltergeist stories over the last three years, and most of the, if not all, of the research that I've done shows a poltergeist, in a general sense, is an energy that's created or manifested from a person going through some kind of anguish, whether it be a teenager going through puberty, or uh, in some cases, like the Indianapolis poltergeist, it was an old elderly woman who just had a lot going on. Um, you know, so I know there are other cases that don't involve children with puberty, but in most yeah. cases, it's usually something that is felt like is manifested by a person's own energy. But that doesn't sound like what you're talking about when you refer to a poltergeist. You refer to it almost as it's if it's a, a separate entity altogether. Right. I give, and, and, and I spend a lot of time in my new book uh, going against the current grain of poltergeist phenomena. And um, I stay very close to the evidence of what I've seen and what we captured and I've come to the conclusion, based on my experience and the evidence um, that Steve and others have captured in conjunction with my own, that poltergeists are their own independent entity. Uh, I know the current thought or the majority thought, and you're right, is uh, poltergeists are a result of some sort of stress happening to an individual, primarily female or adolescent teenager, and most of, not all, the phenomena can be linked to some sort of RSPK, uh, telekinesis, whatnot. I don't think that's 100% wrong or right. I think there's a little bit of truth in all of it. Um, the interesting thing about my ordeal and the data that I was able to capture, and we got to go where the data sends us. We can't, you know get bogged down and to say, oh, it's that and that's the end of the story. Well, if it's that and that's the end of the story, then you're telling me we've now reached a conclusion and proven that Portuguese are, are actually real and they do exist. Or is there more data to be had? And I think there's more data to be had. What makes this case so interesting and uh, a lot of parapsychological organizations around the world are just getting hold of book one and book two. I think I sent you... The psychological research um they've studied my case and are still studying my case and they've come to the almost come to the conclusion that what keith experienced and what keith and tina witnessed and experienced has just turned poltergeist of what we know of it on its head now once again this is not me saying it this is them saying that and what they say is because what Keith describes in his book, there's, this, there's, this, there's several instances, too many to count, where Keith has left his house. Keith is in another state. Keith is on the other side of the country. Tina is still in the house with her girlfriend or whoever, and they're both being attacked at the same time. Keith is being attacked over here. Tina is being tacked over here. There's door slams. There's loud banging. You know, what we know about Portuguese right now is somebody's an agent. 
not by choice. Obviously, not, most of the time, they're not an agent by choice. But you're an agent nonetheless. So we got to figure you out. Figure you, Jane Doe, out. Why are you creating this phenomena around the house? If we solve your puzzle, this stuff will cease to happen in your house and you guys can have a happy home. What Keith is telling us is he's traveled on business and he's having violent attacks away. And Tina, who decided to stay in the home, is having violent attacks and vice versa. Then you throw a third party in here, like my attorney, who I, I told you in, in the book about the Hell House, who came to the house one day and ridiculed the spirits. And she started having similar, if almost identical, phenomena in her respective home. And she lives in Hawaii. And all this stuff in conjunction with the wall writings, uh, the fires, uh, the substance that the wall writings is made out of, uh, the voices that Stephen Dawn caught where the spirits are talking to each other by first name and saying, hey, go take that camera. Hey, go turn it off. And, you know, we always talk about objects disappearing and reappearing in different places. Well, we now have the voices that coincide with that. You know, we've always had the after effect. We've always had the, you know, there's two things in like chicken or the egg. We've always had the egg, you know, or we always had the chicken. Now we got the voices saying, Ray, go take that camera. And what have I been saying throughout my book and throughout my ordeal? Cameras go missing. If you read my book, The Bothell mm-hmm. Hell House, there's a campaign or a period in the book of summer 2014 where camera, camera, camera go missing. As soon as I turn my back, the camera is gone. Sometimes I have not even left the room. The camera is gone. Well, we didn't have the voice before that. Stephen Don come in and set up listening devices throughout the yin-yang, and now you hear the voice. I'm talking about like you and I are talking. Clearly, you're on my voice. You heard them on, on the documentary, and the spirits are like, it's a camera. It's a camera. Go and lift one of these. Go and take one of these. And it just blows your mind. So that, in my sense should uh, shed more light and perhaps redefine what we know uh, about Portuguese. Some of these sentient beings we have to understand um, may confirm that us as human beings are not on the, uh, we're not at the top of the pyramid when it comes to knowledge and intelligence. Um, These spirits, if I'm a spirit, if I'm an entity, if I want you to think that Jane Doe is creating the activity because of some RSPK. Remember, I'm invisible. You can't see me. I could be standing right next to her knocking stuff over. And of course, your brain is going to say, ah, she's doing it, but she's doing it subconsciously. It might be an entity there that's doing it or standing next to Jane Doe. So that's why I say it, it deserves a revisit of the classification of what Portuguese is. Absolutely incredible story. He's Keith Linder author of The Bothell Hell House and the second book, Attachments. Keith, why don't you tell everybody how they can, excuse me, get the book and how they can keep up with you on social media. Uh, Yeah, once again, like I said, thanks for uh, having me uh, tonight. Um, Both books can be found easily, readily available on Amazon.com. The Bothell Hell House and more importantly, Attachments, Portuguese of Washington State. Um, just Google those names on Amazon or Google Keith Lender, um, and you'll and you'll come face to face with uh, book one and book two. 
Uh, like you said earlier, they're very interactive. Uh, there's links in there of where you can find me social on social media, via Facebook, via WordPress blog. Uh, I've included my email address. Uh, I don't shy away from being communicated. I like to be communicated or emailed. Even from if you got a question or you're a skeptic or anything like that, of course, email me. Uh, that's why my email address is in the back of both books. Um, I'm substantiated. I, I won't lie. I won't cut corners. I won't over-exaggerate. Um, yeah, three Bibles caught fire, so I'm always going to answer any question the same way based on what we saw. So, yeah, they can definitely find those on Amazon. Uh, you'll put the link to the documentary. But definitely for your listeners, um, watch the Ghost Adventures episode and then watch uh, um, Stephen Dawn documentary. And I think it should be, it's pretty much academic. I'll go ahead and use that word uh, comfortably. This case is pretty much academic. There's no, the only holdouts now are two people about this case being real or just outright diehard Ghost Adventure fans. They're never going to move the needle on them. That's just how Zach, over the 14 years or 15 years of his career on Travel Channel, has molded his listeners to behave. Or you just have downright skeptic trolls who are not going to believe anything, anything, until the poltergeist bites them in the backside. That's 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 the only two people now who still doubt the validity uh, of this case. Keith, before I let you go, you've been very vocal about the experience with Ghost Adventures. Have you had any contact with them guys since then? Or was that it? <laughs> Indirectly. I'm glad you asked that question. In, not, not to me directly. to Because the paranormal community is small. It's a small community. And, and news travels fast. And it's not. this is not me trying to rub anything in Ghost Adventures' face. Okay? So when the, the evidence came out, news got back to Zach and crew about the evidence. Um, and their reaction was still the same and it was really funny and kind of weird of how they just disavowed their own peers i mean i'm in it so i have peers in it so when they come with me with the it stuff related the things that i don't know i don't disavow it off the my knee-jerk reaction is not to disavow it if you got something introduced to me i want to hear it i want to see it uh, i put zach and dave schrader's twitter response in my second book to when, when Steve and Dawn made their evidence public. They didn't mail it to Zach and Ghost Adventure. They just made it public through the media, and somebody hand-delivered the media report to Zach and crew, and they felt the need to, to bash Steve Mara and Dawn. They don't know Steve Mara and Dawn. Steve Mara is a parapsychologist who's been in the field 35 years. Why would you bash him, a total stranger, who's in the same field that you are? So they did, and it was just funny. It just, I mean, me being a professional IT I, I sort of laugh at that, st that stuff. I thought it was childish. So they know, and they're still holding to their guns of, we found no evidence. Well, yeah, you found no evidence, and that's fine. But guess what? Out of the eight teams that came to my house, you, your team, meaning you, Zach, are the only ones that did not find any evidence. Every team that's come to my house has found evidence. I'm talking about local, to the specific to the Seattle area. And the UK and the East Coast of the United States have left with evidence. And if you're really a professional, if you really care about the craft 
of the paranormal, if you're really trying to advance the paranormal, which all researchers should be doing, then I would think Zach and Dave would want to see the evidence or have a conference call with Steve or Don and just have a sit-down professional, professional. Take me out of the equation. I don't even have to be there. Just talk to Steve and talk to Don and listen to Nick Kyle and listen to the evidence and then say something on your Twitter feed. But like I said, to answer your question, I have not heard from them directly, but I know the truth got to them and their response, like I said, I put in my second book. Keith Linder, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. It was a fascinating interview last time. It was just as good this time, and I really enjoyed it. Do you got anything else in the uh, in the works that where I can have you back on in the future? Uh, well, there's, there's going to be a book three, but book three will not be about my experience. Book three is going to be, um, for those who are familiar with Stephen Hawking, who wrote The Brief History of Time, you know, it was one of the best-selling books ever. Um, you know, when he came out with that book, a long time ago, he came up with a, uh, another edition called the Illustrated Version to better explain in an illustrated fashion what he was mentioning in the brief history of time. Book three is going to be an illustrated version of the probably the top ten phenomenas that we witnessed, me and Tina. I'm talking about the A-port, the ass-port, the objects catching fire. The illustrated version is going to explain from a physics or scientific point of view of how is that stuff even possible? How, how, how does dimes rain from a ceiling? Where does that stuff come from? You know, we always hear stuff about 11 dimensions and string theory and quantum physics and the uncertainty principle. A lot of things we witness, I can tell you, um, sound like the uncertainty principle and, and what physics regard as, you know, observation of an object alters its course and it and i could tell you a lot of poltergeist phenomena that we witness uh fits that description so that's what book three is uh, going to be about i'm gonna start writing that after the christmas holidays and hopefully get it out uh, a year from today awesome brother we'll have you back on when that one comes out it was a pleasure having you on oh thank you very much man and to you and yours out there happy holidays and merry christmas thank you for having me same to you keith thanks well, I think that was a pretty good show. Yeah, it was. He Christ- sure is interesting. Christmas came a week early. It did. You know what? I love you guys. <laughs> there could be some other kind of insight coming. No. I've been kind of, you know, down and out this Christmas. But I'm starting to feel the love now. And I just hope that you guys have a Merry Christmas and we appreciate all of our guests that come on. Oh, my goodness. We are just blessed as can be. So thank you guys for all that you've come on and done interviews with us. And we get to share it with everybody that loves it. And it's so funny to think that three years ago we couldn't get a guest. Yeah, yeah. And now it's like I've got a list that's it's like I can't get everybody on who I wants know. to come and, on. Isn't that the wonderful thing? It's just so wonderful. I love it's it. A, it's a good problem to have. Yes, it is. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, the next time we'll see you be Sunday, and we uh, another cool show for you then. All right, guys. Have a blessed week. <laughs>